You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, The Kings and the King, Expectation in the Books of the Kings. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, good morning, First Family Church. My name is Travis Walker. I'm the youth and family pastor here. It's my privilege to be able to uh, open God's word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you mind opening up to the book of 2 Kings? We started a series last week that we are continuing called The King the Kings and the King, and we're going to be looking through the entirety of the book of Second Kings. In case you weren't here last week, let me catch you up to speed real quick, and if you were here, maybe you could as well use a gentle reminder. Last week, we looked at the bleak narrative of Israel's spiritual state, where when the king of Israel severely hurt, he decides not to reach out to the God of Israel, Yahweh, but instead reaches out to the god of Ekron. During a conversation between the king and Elijah, Elijah asks this probing question. Why are you reaching out to the king of Ekron? Is there no god in Israel? Israel was so spiritually bankrupt that during difficult times, their leader runs to false gods instead of the one true god, who has loved them since their beginning. We asked the question last week, is there no God or do we live as if God doesn't exist? Maybe we acknowledge his existence. We would say we're Christian, but does many times our lives look as if we live as if he doesn't exist? Well, this week we will discuss, do you trust him? If you say you believe in God, do you really trust him with your life? Do you live every day of your life dependent and trusting in God, or is God more of a Hail Mary pass you throw out just when times are really difficult? To kind of get your mind where we're going, I want to tell you a simple illustration. In, 1850, in the 1850s, there was this man named Charles Blondin. Maybe you've heard this story before. He was a man that would walk across tightropes, and he would gain large crowds and audiences. And so in order to continue getting large crowds and to get, continue to get people to come back, he would have to up it a little bit, right? Make it a little bit more difficult. So he would travel uh, the United States performing these stunts, and eventually he made his way to Niagara Falls. And he put a line across Niagara Falls, and he would walk across Niagara Falls, which of course drew tons of people, thousands of people to see this stunt. So as he continued to do that, he had to continue to make it a little bit more difficult. And so he would perform these outrageous feats that you can find online where he would sit down on the line right in the middle of Niagara Falls. One time he fried an egg on the line. One time he crossed the line on stilts. Like this guy was impressive. And he had to continue to make it better and bigger, right? So one time he put down the long pole that they carry and he grabbed a wheelbarrow, and he went from one side to the other pushing a wheelbarrow. He got to the one end, he decided to fill the wheelbarrow with rocks, and then push it back across. Just amazing, isn't this? Incredible. Well, he got back to the other side, the original side he came from, with the wheelbarrow filled with rocks. Again, a huge crowd, thousands of people there. He decided, got to step it up a little bit more. So he emptied the rocks, and he asked for a volunteer. He said... 
How many of you believe that I could take a human? I just did rocks, right? How many of you believe that I could put a human being in the wheelbarrow and wheel it across? They're all like, yeah, of course you can. You're amazing. You're so talented. This You can do anything. Okay, who's going to hop in the wheelbarrow? And surprisingly, there were no volunteers. See, people had this understanding of his abilities, a head knowledge that he was impressive and talented and gifted, but when it came to putting their trust in him and putting their lives in his hands, that's where the line was drawn. And I think that's a good illustration of where our text will be taking us today. See, many of us think that belief in God or respect for God is what God desires from us. But in reality, what God wants is for us to trust him with our lives. The nation of Israel is at this point in 2 Kings chapter 3. At their best, they are like the crowd who admires God and is aware of his power. But what God wants from his people and from us is daily dependence and trust. He wants us to get inside the wheelbarrow and trust him with our lives. That's the narrative we're going to be looking at today. So if you're in 2 Kings chapter 3, I want to walk you through our text a little bit. The two chapters are two distinct stories. And I think the connection between the two is hopefully what our takeaway is supposed to be. So chapter 3, we're going to look at what trust in God doesn't look like. What it's not supposed to look like. And then in chapter 4, you're going to see a picture of what trust in God does look like. Can I read the first eight verses for us? 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. In the eighth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and said word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Just for sake of time, we're going to kind of focus on that text, and you're going to have to let me summarize the, le- the rest of the chapter. So real quick, our main character is this king of Israel named Jehoram. And verses 2 through 3 teach us that Jehoram is not the king Israel needs. Did you see that in verses 2 and 3? He's an evil king. He, he sins greatly. But the text does give him a little bit of grace here. He's a tad bit better than his parents, Ahab and Jezebel, so that's a pretty low bar. So let's not expect too much out of Jehoram. So the summary of chapter 3, you have Jehoram, the king of Israel, and he is mad. He's mad because a neighboring nation, the Moabites, their king has refused to pay tribute to Israel when they had to while the previous king 
Ahab and his wife Jezebel were alive. They've stopped paying this tribute. Jehoram decides that he still deserves the tribute and it is worth going to war over. He wants that power. I'm not sure he cared too much about the financial gain. He wants the power. And he decides that the loss of lives is worth the power gained through this battle. So he reaches out to Jehoshaphat, which is the king of Judah, as well as the king of Edom, to rally enough troops to take out Moab. So a fight's a brewing. But please notice in those first eight verses that I read to you that there is a noticeable lack of God so far in our text. So far, the king of Israel's got a plan, and he's the guy that's going to accomplish it. He has had very little need for God yet. The people of God at this point have no need for God. That should be pretty noticeable. So our text goes on, and to a point where after walking seven days towards the battle line in the wilderness, they run out of water. And it isn't until then that they reach out for help. It isn't until disaster strikes that they finally are like, um, this is bigger than us. We need some help. Israel is in a place where they are self-confident, self-confident and autonomous with a side of religion thrown in. Do you see that? When in reality, what they should be is dependent and trusting. And they're revealing their colors. They're proving to us they haven't been dependent upon God. Their relationship with God is distant at best. And it isn't until tragedy strikes that they're like, oh God, uh, we, need, we need your help. A sociologist named Christian Smith did a report on the Christian landscape of America. So he pulled American Christians to find out what they truly believe. And he came to the conclusion that Christianity in America, what they predominantly believe is what he calls moralistic, therapeutic deism, and not the Christianity of the Bible. Let me explain that to you real quick. He decided, he came to this conclusion, that most Christians in America are moralistic, which means they believe that God wants them to be good, they're therapeutic, which means the result of their being good is that God will make you happy, and that they're deists, which means they believe in a God, but a God that is mostly unknowable. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And I think that would perfectly describe Jehoram at this point. He gives a head nod to God, an acknowledgement of God, but he lives predominantly as if God doesn't matter. God just wants him to be good and, and maybe happy. And when Jehoram's not good, God's going to punish him. And then in our text, that even when God does come up in conversation, look at how they think of God, okay? Look at verses 10 through 12. God finally comes up in conversation and notice their responses. In verses 10, Jehoram just blames God. Like, see, God's not worthy of being trusted. He made us run out of water so that the Moabites can kill us. This is exactly like who I thought God was. This is because of God that all of this is happening. And then Jehoshaphat, who is by far the wiser of the two kings, he's at least able to ask, isn't there a way that we can inquire of God? Can't we talk to God and find out what he's up to? And Jehoshaphat asks, where's your prophet, Jehoram? Where is your man of God? 
And notice in the text in verses 11 and 12 that who knows where Elisha is? A servant. A humble servant knows where the man of God is. I think that's very interesting. And he says that Elisha is with us. How crazy. He's, he's among us. We don't have to go look for him. He's been with us the whole time, and you've had no need for him, Joram. The man of God has been in our midst the entire time, but you've not once had a conversation with him. You have had, not, you have had no need for him to this point. See, the king is so spiritually bankrupt that he has no idea how to communicate with God when he needs him, so he decides to just blame him. That's his view of their God. Verse 13, enter Elisha, the man of God. And Elisha's response in verse 13 is beautiful. It's so perfect because he's reminding us of the spiritual state that Israel is in at this time. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. Elisha is saying, oh, now you run to me? Oh, I got it. Why not go to your prophets, the prophets you've been going to for the last many years? Why don't you reach out to them and see what they have to say? That's who you've been relying on lately. His sarcasm teaches us that the spiritual state of Israel is far from God. They're living independently from God, and this is not a nation who is currently trusting God, but instead is a nation who only thinks about God when things go bad. That sound familiar? The rest of the story I've got to summarize for you in chapter 3. The rest of the story is God's merciful response to sinful people. It's interesting, as you read through the chapter, you would expect, or I expected my first reading through this, oh, God is going to get them. Man, they are not obeying, they are not living a trusting life, God's going to punish, and instead the opposite is true. God blesses the sinful nation by providing them exactly what they need. They're without water, and God, because of his kindness and goodness, because of his word, because of his namesake, he provides water for the nation in spite of their lack of trust. In verse 16, he says, I will make this day, uh, I will make this day dry uh, stream beds full of pools. In verse 17, he says, and you won't even see the wind or the rain. I'm going to provide a miracle. Your dry stream beds are going to be filled with water, and you're going to wonder where the water came from. It just appeared. Verse 18, why? Because this is an easy thing for the Lord to do. He's reminding them of his character. This is who I am. I'm the Almighty. I am the I am. I don't need anything. I am in charge. I created the heavens and the earth. I can fill dry stream beds. Oh, and on top of that, look in verse 18, he says, Oh, and on top of that, I will give the Moabites into your hand. Not only will I provide water for you, but I'm going to solve your problem too. I'll take care of the Moabites. And then the rest of the chapter, verses 21 through 26, God is going to save Israel through that very same water. If you've never read this chapter before, it is fascinating. There's desolation, right? They're desperate and out of their desperation, God saves. It's beautiful. Verses 21 through 26. Moab, the king of Moab, the Moabites, they wake up the next morning and they see water that wasn't there the day before, right? You got the picture? It was dry. They're out of water. And the next morning, there's water where there wasn't 
water before. And they wake up, and the sun is shining on these pools, and it makes the water look red, okay? So they wake up, there's all this water, and it's red. They're like, well, it sure couldn't be water, because there wasn't water there yesterday, so it must be blood. This is the decision they came to. And they're like, those foolish Israelites, they're fighting each other. And their blood is just streaming into these dry stream beds. This is awesome. Let's go clean up. So because of what they believe, that these foolish Israelites are fighting each other, they go in and storm in, and Israel's ready for them. And instead of them being cleaned up, they clean up. And the Moabites run. The king of Moab runs. God not only provides water for Israel, but saves them through that water. It's a fulfillment of verses 17 and 18. God is reminding Israel that he is worthy of their trust. Have I not told you you can trust me? You can lean on me? I am your God. You are my people. I've got you. He again reminds them of his goodness. In spite of Israel, God protects Israel. Isn't that the story of our lives? My testimony is that God has saved me in spite of me. I'm a mess. Everything I touch, I destroy. And yet God in his infinite grace and love and mercy says, I got you. Trust me. I'll take care of you. Why do you keep thinking you got this, Travis? Why do you keep leaning towards self-confidence and trying to be autonomous? Why do you think you're fine alone, Travis? I've carried you every single moment of your life. Trust me. Man, chapter 3 is about me, and I think it's about you, too. If you've ever wondered in this text, yeah, why? Why is God blessing them? The simple answer is because God's good, because of God's promises to his people, because of God's namesake. That's why God is blessing. See, chapter 3 is a story of what it looks like to not trust God, right? That's what we learn in chapter 3. The question I think we're meant to wrestle with in chapter 3 is, is God your help just in times of trouble, or is God your help? He should be your help. He should be your helper, not just a person you cry out to when things have fallen apart. He should be the one you cry out to every single morning of your life because you know you're dependent and he's worthy of trust. All right, chapter four. We got to keep moving. Ready? Chapter four, what trust in God really looks like. Man, I studied this passage for a long time and could not figure out the connection between the two. And God's been good to me and helped me see this. And commentaries are always helpful. Chapter four is the flip of this entire story. Chapter four is a picture of what trust in God really looks like. See, compared to chapter three, this is beautiful. Catch this. Please don't miss this. In chapter 3, you have important men with names everyone knows, right? It's a chapter filled with proper names, guys' names. In chapter 4, you have people, nameless people, who trust God and were never told who they are. There should be an obvious difference between those two. Notice in chapter 4, and I know you probably haven't had time to read it yet, but notice that the only names that you are given in chapter 4 are Elisha and Gehazi. And Gehazi's Elisha's servant. Everyone else in chapter 4 doesn't get a name. They're maybe told where they live, 
what they do, their occupation, but we're never told their name. That's on purpose. Of course it is. We're supposed to learn something from this. The point is to contrast chapters 3 and 4, and we'll help you see that today. 2 Kings 4 is a story of four or maybe five miracles. It's four different stories. That's what chapter 4 is. God now wants us to see people with everyday trust in God in spite of life circumstances. So in chapter 3, you see people who have no, they don't have everyday trust in God. Got it? But then when a circumstance, a a problem arises, they reach out to God. And in chapter 4, you're going to see people that every single day of their life trust in God. They live a life of trusting in God. And then when circumstances, desperation happens, it's just natural for them to reach out to God. That's the point of this story. Each story teaches us what everyday trust looks like, as well as demonstrates God's power over the problems we face. So let's dive into chapter 4. We can trust God. Here's the outline of chapter four. We can trust God even during, we're going to look at debt. We're going to look at, oh yeah, sorry, I skipped that slide. They saw it though, right? Okay. So it's four different stories that all have the same outline. Thank you. Thank you. But here we go. Okay, ready? So in chapter four, we're going to see that we can trust God even during debt, death, danger, and drought. See those four Ds? I didn't come up with that, but it's good. So we can trust God even during debt, death, danger, and drought. So let's quickly hit each four of these stories, and you're going to see no-name people with everyday faith. An emergency comes up, and it's natural for them to say, God, we need your help. That's the point of chapter four. You ready? The first story is the endless oil. You've got to look carefully, Bible readers. You ready? Get your pencil out, your pen out, your highlighter out. In each one of these four chapters is a little hint. It's not very obvious. You're going to have to look with me carefully. In each one of these four stories is a small hint of the daily trust that these people have. And then you're going to compare it to chapter 3, and you're going to say like, oh, yeah, I didn't see that in Jehoram. It's interesting that this individual it says this of them. We're in chapter 3. It doesn't say that. You ready? We're going to have to look carefully. Okay. The endless oil, verses 1 through 7. You see nameless people's daily dependence in verse 1. Look at what verse 1 says. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. The hint in verse 1 is, and you know your servant feared the Lord. And also, that she knows where Elisha is. Like, that's an improvement from chapter 3, right? Chapter 3, they're like, where's Elisha? And the dude's like standing right next to him, right? This lady knows exactly where Elisha is, cries out to him, and then says, you know us. You know our character. You know what we're like. We're people who have always feared the Lord. Did you read any verse in chapter 3 about the nation of Israel fearing the Lord, the king fearing the Lord? No. There's the hint right there. This is a lady, a family who has fear for the Lord. They've had consistent daily, not perfection, but consistent daily trust in the God of Israel, the God of Yahweh. And then desperation strikes. The woman's husband dies and the creditors are knocking on the door. Hey, you owe us. Pay your bills. And she's like, I don't know what to do. 
I have nothing. I don't know how I'm going to take care of this. Elisha asks her, what do you have? She's like, I have a jar of oil. That's all I've got. Elisha says, that'll do. That'll work. God's mercy and kindness in verses 1 through 7 is the endless oil. She goes to her neighbor's house. I need your jars. I need your jars. They're like, whatever. They're empty. They're not going to do you any good. You can borrow our jars. She takes the oil, fills the other jars, and there's endless oil. All the jars are full. All the jars she went and collected fill up. And Elisha tells her now, go pay off your debts. And the rest of the oil that you have, live on that. You'll be fine. You'll be taken care of. The application to verses 1 through 7 is, are there any overwhelming life circumstances right now that you're facing? What are, what are those circumstances in your life? And do you trust God? Do you reach out to him daily with your needs, with your constant struggles, the things that seem overwhelming? Do you run to God or do you run to your neighbors? Do you look to solve your own problems or are you a person dependent upon God? Do you reach out for God and say, God, we need your help. We can't solve this. This is a problem too big for us. We need your help. And then ultimately, has that been true of you throughout your whole life? Have you been a person who's been dependent upon God? Would it be characterized of you that you were a person who fears God? Would your friends say that of you? Would your pastor say that of you? And then do you know where to turn to help when help is needed? Instantly, she knew right where Elisha was. Elisha, I need you. I need to pray. I need help. Would these be characteristics of you? This was the characteristic of this woman. Next story is the dead son. It's a very lengthy story, so I'm going to summarize again. It's verses 8 through 37. Again, you'll notice nameless people. This is the story of the Shunammite woman. Her name's not Shunammite, right? I was confused on that. It's a nameless person, and this is what we're told about her daily dependence. Again, it's a hint. It's subtle, but I think you'll notice it. Verses 8 through 10 shows us that she has respect and care for the man of God. Elisha would walk by often, and he would always stop in this family's home. This was a family who respected and loved God and Yahweh enough that they were willing to care for this man. Of course you can stay at our place. We know you. We know who you work for. We know who you represent. Our house is your house. Whatever you need, it's yours. To the point where they built him a room or maybe a side of their house they gave to him. It's yours, Elisha. Everything you need is in this bedroom. It's, we trust that you're a man of God, that you work for God. And then verse 30 says that they believe and they have faith in the God who lives. See these just subtlety hints teaching us about their character. God says, it's not important that you know her name. It's important you know her character. Because I want you to model her character I want you to be people who love God and serve God and care for people of God and who trust and obey the God who, is, who lives. Subtle hints. Desperation strikes. So the first miracle was that God gives her a son when her husband is old. But then the second miracle, her, husband, or her son sorry, dies. He's out in the field and he says, my head, my head. And he runs home and his mom's holding him and he dies in her arms. And this woman instantly runs and goes, finds Elisha. 
Elisha, my son, is dead. Elisha, knowing the character of God, sends his servant, lays his staff on the boy. Elisha shows up. That doesn't work. Elisha lays his body on top of the boy, and the boy sneezes seven times. I have no idea why that's in the text, but it's really interesting. And he comes back to life. Desperation strikes. The son, God miraculously heals. And God, in his mercy and his kindness, brings the boy back to life. So what's the point of this story? I think it's for us to wrestle with, are there health situations that you're facing in your life? I think that's the point of these four different stories and how each interesting story has a different need. Man, if I hear one thing as a person on staff at this church is many prayer requests deal with health situations. We reach out to God often when there's health situations. But I think the question is, do you trust him? Do you trust God with every health situation? Do you trust God with every day? Do you trust God with every news you get from the doctor? Do you have this daily trust upon God when things don't go well? Or do you just have daily trust in God? Knowing that he is the maker of your body, he is the sustainer of your body, it's his. So whatever he chooses to do, whatever he allows you to have or to get, you're his. He'll take care of you. He'll be faithful and good and merciful and kind. Or is the first time you've been to church in a while when you got news from the doctor that you have cancer. You get the bad news and, oh, where's my Bible? Man, I should probably go to church, right? The character of this woman is she is a person who loves God and honors him and respects him. So when tragedy strikes, she knows instantly where to turn. She knows exactly what to do. That's the character we're supposed to model in the second story. The third story, I got to keep moving, is the deathly stew. This, this, okay, this story is hilarious. You got to take some time to just read it and then do a couple word studies. I don't have time, but it's good. Okay, the deathly stew. This is verses 38 to 41. Again, nameless people's daily dependence. Again, there's a hint here. Verse 38, who are these men? These are sons of the prophets. You know what that means? These were disciples or followers of Elijah and Elisha. That's what that phrase, sons of the prophets, means. They weren't literally sons of Elijah or Elisha's. They were disciples of. They were followers of. So these were men who, when the nation had very little care for God, these men did. When the nation was far from God and Elijah and Elisha were the only ones They thought they were the only ones. These were followers of the disciples. So these were of the prophets. So these were the faithful. This was the remnant. And so this story is about these guys who stayed faithful, who remained, who believed, even when the nation didn't. Sons of the prophets. They're disciples of Elijah and Elisha. And notice where they are in our story. They're sitting before Elisha. Teach us. We're yours. We believe. You say Yahweh's alive. You say he's worthy of trust. We're in. That's who these guys are. Daily dependents sitting before their teacher. Teach us. We want to believe. We want to trust. We want to know. Whatever you teach us, we believe. We're with you. And then desperation strikes. In verse 40, 
Or in this story, a man goes and makes a pot of stew, finds a vine, finds a wild gourd, cuts it up, puts it in the stew. The men are eating it, and they say, oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. Do a little word study on the gourd. A little hint, it's a laxative. It's hilarious. It would kill in youth ministry. Like, this would be, if you ever have to teach middle school, just teach this story. It'll kill. It'll, Okay. So it's a wild gourd. They put it in the stew. They scream, which is funny. And then Elisha says, get some flour. We'll solve this. And it wasn't the flour that solved the stew. It was God's hand of mercy and kindness. He blesses God. You see God's mercy and kindness in that he purifies the stew. He doesn't just like purify the stew or save them from the stew. He gives them the stew. Notice that? Like he puts the flour in the stew and then says, eat. You need this. That's very trusting people to be like, yeah, I'll take another scoop of that. But they're willing to trust Elisha, and they eat the soup, and they're sustained, and they have strength. And then notice in the text it says that there was a drought, and so this food would have been very important to them. What's the application of this story? Because that there's potential dangers in all of our lives. None of your lives are risk-free. None of them are. Is our job in life to limit risk? And just say, I'm not doing anything that could possibly hurt me or kill me. I'm going to pick an occupation, and we're not going to travel, and we're not going to do anything that involves risk. Or do you just trust God? I think that's the point here. When I think about folks in our congregation, many of you drive for work. And there's danger involved with that, right? Potential car accidents. Many of you guys are in cars for a lot of time. And some of you work with heavy machinery, and there's risk involved, and do you not do those things or do you trust God in the midst of them? We have police officers in our congregation and no doubt that is a high-risk job. And you just avoid and we're, we're going to limit risk. Or we people who trust God with our lives. Every day, a day of dependence, regardless of what you do for a living. Do you just, we're people who trust God. The final story is verses 42 through 44 the endless meal. Again, we're in this drought period. Food is a premium. Water's a premium. And you have nameless people's daily dependence. Look at verse 42. They bring the man of God food from his first fruits. Notice that? Underline that. Highlight that. That's really significant. In a season of drought, this man is tithing of his first. That's trust. That's faith. You notice many of us struggle with this, especially when finances are short. What do we do? Skimp on the tithe. This is a man who says, I am not doing that. I trust. I believe. God gets his. Why? Because I trust him. Because he's good. He'll take care of me. My Trust in God is more important than my budget. My faith in God is more important than what the dollar signs say. I trust God. He gets his. Desperation strikes. The drought, there's not enough food. The text says that there's a hundred hungry men, and they only have this small portion. God's mercy and kindness. God takes what he has and feeds the hundred men with a small amount of food, and the text says that there's some left over. Does that sound like a 
Jesus story, feeding the 4,000, feeding the 5,000. The application to this text is, do you ever lack resources? Is there ever not enough? When you look at expenses and compare it to your income, it's not looking good. Where's the first place you steal from? Is it God? Or are you the type of people that say, I trust? I don't know how everything's going to work out. I don't know exactly how we're going to pay our bills, but God gets his. Not because God's a monster and he's going to rain down terror upon me if I don't, because I trust him. That's why I'm willing to give God his. So let's summarize chapter 4. So what do we learn from chapter 4? What we see is that chapter 4 is people who don't just use God when difficult situations come, but they live their entire life dependent on God, even when they're in difficult situations. So that when difficult situations arise, so that when disaster strikes, here's three things they do. They, first of all, they know where to find God, as opposed to Jehoram, who just blames God and then is like, I haven't seen Elisha in a long time. These are people that know how to get a hold of God. They're familiar with communion with God, with conversation with God. They know where to turn. They know where the men of God are. Number two, when disaster strikes, they know the character of God. What did Jehoram not know? The character of God. Disaster strikes, he's like, yep, see what I told you? God's a jerk. Don't trust him. He led us into this wilderness. He made the water run out. No, people who trust God know his character. So that when difficult times come, you don't doubt his goodness and his kindness. And then lastly, when disaster strikes, they trust in God. And that's ultimately what we need. Life is filled with disasters and difficult times and tragedies and trials. The thing that sets Christians apart is trust, not the lack of disasters. The thing that separates us, that makes us stand out to the world, is not the lack of problems, but the trust in the midst of problems. That's who we need to be. Does this sound like you? Put yourself in either chapter 3 or chapter 4. Do a little self-reflection. Does your life story seem a little bit more like Jehoram? God's mean, don't trust him, haven't talked to him in a long time. Or is your life more like the nameless people who have a life of dependency and trust? See, I think many times we'd rather be known than know somebody. We'd rather have our name recognized rather than be nameless. I don't want to be nameless. But in the chapters 3 and the 4, who's the wiser of the folks? The nameless ones who have the daily dependence and trust. Pray that we are found in chapter 4, that we're more like those folks. So in chapter 3, you have famous people who live life without God and who don't know what to do when disaster strikes. In chapter 4, you have no, no names, no buddies, but they live a dependent and faith-filled life. And when the desperate situations arise, it's just natural and normal for them to call out to God. What's the point, you see? God does not need help, or sorry, God does not help those who help themselves. But God helps those who know they can't help themselves. 
That's the story of the Bible. It doesn't matter to God if you're rich or poor, famous or not, married or single. God's greatest desire for you is that you're aware of your daily need for him and live your life trusting that he loves you and cares for you even when disaster strikes. Here's our take-home truth. Maybe help summarize it. Belief in God is not what defines a child of his. Trust does. And trusting children live every day aware of their utter dependence on him. Maybe you've heard this verse before. It's in 2 Chronicles, which is a similar story to 2 Kings. It says this. We, this is the nation of Israel. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I wish, man, I should wake up every morning and say that. That's so true of my life. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Amen. Pray that we would pray that every single morning. God, today, I don't have a clue what to do. I'm, I'm in over my head. This is bigger than me. I can look at you. I can focus on you. You'll take care of me. Yes, there is a God in Israel, and he is worthy of our trust in every life situation. Yes, there is a God, and he is worthy of your trust every single day and in every life situation. Do you trust him? Is your life characterized by daily time with him? A consistent prayer life, whether life-threatening or trivial? And do you have a confident peace in God's goodness, power, and strength. I want to read for you Psalm chapter 63, verses 1 through 8. If you have your Bibles, could you turn there with me? It's beautiful. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 63. I think Psalm chapter 63, verses 1 through 8, summarizes 2 Kings chapter 4. This is what these four stories teach us. This is how we should live today. Psalm chapter 63, verses 1 through 8. You ready? O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see those common themes? 2 Kings 4 and Psalm 63, verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. My right hand, your right hand, upholds me. That is a description of a person who has trust and dependence upon God. Is that a description of you? Is that a description of me? Am I growing in that direction at least? 
Am I becoming the type of person who Psalm 63 represents? I, pr- I pray so. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.